When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. On this episode of Newt's World, Dr. Tracy McKenzie is an accomplished historian, author, and professor of history. After 22 years as a professor at the University of Washington, he moved to Wheaton College in Illinois, where he holds the Arthur Holmes Chair of Faith and Learning. Though he maintains an extensive background in post-Civil War history, while at Wheaton College, Tracy's turned his focus towards the way American evangelicals remember their national heritage. One of many works he authored, The First Thanksgiving, what the real story tells us about loving God and learning from history. This book provides an accurate account of the first Thanksgiving and gives insight into misconceptions about the origins of this classic American holiday and how it really ought to be remembered. So I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Dr. Tracy McKenzie. Thank you very much for joining us. I just have to ask you, given all of your background in history, what motivated you to write this book? Great question. I was sort of going through an evolution as a teacher and a scholar, as is often the case, and I wanted to be able to speak more to individuals outside of the walls of the academy. I'm a Christian myself, and also I wanted to be able to speak to Christian readers about how they remember the past. And I particularly was drawn to the topic of Thanksgiving because I think, you know, the way that we remember this event says so much about how our memory of the past intersects with our sense of who we are, both our national heritage and our faith heritage. 
And I thought Thanksgiving was a great way to probe into that. I know that you once wrote an article for the New York Times, sort of taking apart some of the common misconceptions Americans have about the pilgrims. From your perspective, were you surprised by some of the things you learned as you delved into the first Thanksgiving? I was surprised by all kinds of things, actually. You know, if you stop to think about it, very few of us study the pilgrims after grade school. So our understanding of them sort of stays stuck at that level of understanding. So yes, a lot of things surprised me. I'll just mention a couple that I think are the most consequential. I think we actually often misunderstand or misremember what motivated the pilgrims to migrate to New England in the first place. Probably the most common thing that you'll hear is that the pilgrims migrated in search of religious liberty. And I think it's important to sort of complicate that. There's no doubt that the pilgrims felt deeply, strongly about that. But they actually, something we don't recall often, were not coming from England to New England. They were coming from Holland. And where they were living in Leiden, as the pilgrim writers described it, they believed that they experienced remarkable religious freedom, particularly for the context of the 17th century. So although it was very important to them, it was not what was propelling them. And if that had been the primary motivation, it's doubtful they would ever have left Leiden. So they were actually motivated by other factors as well. We often sort of lose sight of those. The other thing that I think is maybe particularly relevant or consequential is how they remembered that event in the fall of 1621 that we call the first Thanksgiving. The pilgrims, when they used the term Thanksgiving, meant something very different from what we do. And I think it's important at least to acknowledge that they thought of Thanksgiving as literally a holy day. They believed that the scripture authorized at least two kinds of holy days that both were supposed to be irregular. One of these holy days was a day of humiliation and fasting. They believed that was modeled in the Old Testament scripture. If there seemed to be an extraordinary trial that the community was experiencing, they would declare this holy day of fasting and humiliation to seek the Lord's deliverance. If they had some sort of extraordinary deliverance from a trial, they would declare a holy day to thank the Lord for his deliverance. The event of 1621 really doesn't fit either one of those. Thanksgiving days, the pilgrims thought, would be spent in church. They would be long, solemn affairs with lots of prayer and worship not playing games outdoors and eating a huge meal. These were people who often spent long periods in church. I was surprised when I went back at one point and was looking at the early days in Virginia, which, because historically I'd been taught, you know, that the pilgrims were really religious, but now when you went down to the Virginia colony, it was more commercial. Well, it turned out they were in church like eight or nine times a week in Virginia, and I would have thought of that as a pretty serious commitment. And so did the pilgrims have a similar kind of sort of church-centric focus? Most definitely. There's no doubt that they did. Their meeting house in the original settlement there was at the heart of the settlement. It served both for a fort, actually, originally, and as their meeting house. And yes, church was very central. One of the most famous 19th century paintings of the Pilgrims shows the pilgrims sort of filing en route to the meeting house on a Sunday. They actually required church attendance. That was true also at Jamestown that we often forget. There was a fine for not attending church. And there's a famous entry in Bradford's History of Plymouth Plantation as early as 1624, where he says he sent assistants sort of through the community knocking on doors on Sunday morning 
and rousting people out of bed who might have chosen to sleep in. So yes, the importance of the church was central to their understanding of what they were about. And that was just as true or even truer in these non-establishment churches as it was in the Church of England, right? Absolutely. The pilgrims had a variety of objections to the Church of England, to their particular practice and hierarchical structure, but they absolutely emphasized the centrality of the church and their desire to separate from the Anglican church was never intended to you know, reduce the importance of the church to the life of the community, but just to allow a different sort of expression of what they believed was God's right design. They arrive, they have a very difficult year. Don't they lose like a third of the, or a quarter of their population? It's actually higher than that. There's 102 passengers on the Mayflower, as William Bradford lists them in his history, and 52 of the 102 die by the spring. So it's just a hair over one half. And they actually don't die on the voyage. There's only one fatality on the voyage itself, but they die after arrival. They actually are going to choose Plymouth as a permanent site for settlement just before Christmas in 1620. And that means that they have to start the arduous work of building a settlement right at the beginning of the winter. They actually live on board the Mayflower. They have to wade ashore every day, if you can imagine, through water up to their shoulders. And they die of, of pneumonia. They die of exposure. And almost every family is affected. There were 18 married couples on the Mayflower, and only three of those couples survived that first winter intact. So, yeah, it just devastates the community. And so when we think of that celebration in the fall of 1621, I just always think it's so important to remember that it's a celebration on the heels of that devastating winter. And every person that was involved in that celebration would have been affected very, very directly by loss. Which sort of, on a much grander scale, if I remember correctly, is a pattern that Lincoln had when he officially proclaimed a day of Thanksgiving because it was in the middle of a civil war. And, you know, kind of odd way, you know, he's asking people to give thanks for what was really an agony and in a, in a, for many of them, a personal loss in their family. So Lincoln is not the first president to issue a proclamation of Thanksgiving, but he actually issues one in the middle of the Civil War that becomes really the first of consecutive proclamations ever since. And so that proclamation, the first one he makes is not long after the Battle of Gettysburg. So it's that same year in the fall of 1863. And Lincoln is asking his fellow Americans to express thanks and acknowledge the kindness of God. If you look at that first proclamation, it's also very interesting. He is doing something that presidents have done almost ever after, which is to tell Americans in particular what they should be thankful for. And Lincoln was trying to make an argument that as tragic as the conflict had been, that God was giving the North victory and that there was every reason to expect that the Union was going to be restored. To go back to the original pilgrims, I confess I was of the generation where we grew up eating turkey and assuming that it was kind of happy time and that the Indians were deeply involved and that it was a much softer, more positive experience, if I might use it that way, and with a little understanding of the trials and the tribulations that the pilgrims had gone through in order to achieve this. To what extent is the whole concept of the Indians being involved a myth, and to what extent were they, in fact? 
part of this experience? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a topic that is sort of fraught with political implications today. And I think we tend to gravitate toward one extreme or the other, either, I think, exaggerating the conflict and hostility between the pilgrims and the neighboring Native American tribes, or we turn it into a kind of hallmark channel, warm and fuzzy interaction. And I think it doesn't fit either of those. We have limited evidence on that relationship, particularly when we think about the 1621 celebration itself. Almost everything we know about it comes from a single letter written by one of the pilgrim colonists, a man named Edward Winslow. And what he tells us, among other things, is that Chief Massasoit, who was the head of the Wampanoag tribe, and his braves came among them. That's the exact wording, you know, sort of that passive tense, they came among them. What he doesn't say is that they were invited. He says, in effect, that they showed up. And we know from other documents from the period that this was something that the Wampanoag were doing regularly, so much so that by the late summer preceding that fall celebration, the pilgrims had actually sent a delegation to the Wampanoag and said, we actually cannot feed you every time that you come, and we're asking you to sort of respect that. So I actually think probably the Wampanoag arrived without invitation, but we also know that they arrived with some food of their own, and that was probably pretty welcome. I think the relationship more broadly between the pilgrims and the Native American peoples was complicated. Some of those tribes in the area, the pilgrims have quite a bit of conflict with, including violent conflict leading to death. But their relationship with the Wampanoag may have been tense, but it was a positive relationship on the whole. Effectively, the pilgrims strike a kind of treaty with the Wampanoag that lasts for half a century. I think they think of themselves as allies, even if maybe a little bit strained at times or sometimes uncomfortable I think in the long run, you'd have to characterize it as a successful, positive interaction that they had. Were they allies against other tribes? That's exactly right. So there's actually any number of Native American tribes in that area around the coastal Massachusetts. And the area had been destabilized, historians believe, actually only in the last few years before the Pilgrims' arrival by disease. Not sure exactly what the disease was, but it clearly had a virulent effect on the population there. But it had an uneven effect, so that some tribes had been affected pretty significantly. Other tribes had been affected not at all. There was a tribe, actually, that lived on the site at Plymouth, the Patuxet, that had been literally wiped out entirely. So this had pretty much destabilized the relations between the Native American peoples. And I think that Wampanoag probably do see the arrival of the pilgrims as a potential ally, at least in the short term, because they have been affected very much by the disease and they are, uh, I think, fearful of being overrun by tribes like the Massachusetts Indians, which were nearby. I guess it's worth noting that the number one disruptor of Native American life in that period was actually disease and that because they had no historic experience with things like measles, their populations were something we can appreciate in the middle of a pandemic. They were just getting hit with wave after wave of a variety of diseases that were taking, in some cases, devastating tolls of the population. So there was a huge disruption underway, driven really by biology rather than European aggression. That's very much the case. Probably uh, contact with sailors, with traders maybe, 
but you're right. Unintended, impossible to anticipate or predict, but you know, very significant in its effect. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine tingling shows on AE Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. How should we look back on this experience? I mean, is Thanksgiving something, since it's now so deeply embedded, that we should, in fact, celebrate as sort of a quintessentially American experience, even if it started very differently than our first and second grade classes might have taught us? <laughs> well, I mean, I certainly like to celebrate Thanksgiving, and I think in many respects we would think of it as a quintessential American holiday. As a historian, where I want to stand up and object is when we believe that we are absolutely falling in the steps of the pilgrims and what we are doing, because the reality is they actually would have objected to a regularly prescribed day of Thanksgiving. They thought it should be irregular and it should be always in tune with their understanding of God's extraordinary work, either in blessing or judgment. And the other thing I think is worth noting is that what we understand as a sort of traditional celebration of Thanksgiving doesn't date from the 17th century. It actually dates from the late 19th century. There was a writer named Jane Austen, and I always have to stop and spell that last name. Her last name was A-U-S-T-I-N, so she was not the author of Pride and Prejudice and other novels by that English author. Jane Austen was a Massachusetts housewife in the 1880s and 1890s who wrote romance novels. 
and she wrote a novel called Standish of Standish, which described probably for the first time for a broad American audience, this vision of a community gathering for a Thanksgiving celebration. And that was picked up by popular magazines and serialized, and then artists began to render it. So most everything that we associate with the historical origins of the holiday comes about two and a half centuries after the fact. But it has been something that Americans have found unifying, not always. Thanksgiving, actually, when it begins to be celebrated, it's primarily celebrated in New England and not in the South. The Pilgrims actually did not believe you should celebrate Christmas. They didn't think that that was a holiday that was prescribed in Scripture. And so in New England, you make Thanksgiving the big holiday and you sort of pass on Christmas. And in the southern states, you make Christmas the big holiday and you pass on Thanksgiving because it's a Yankee holiday and you don't want any part of that. And it's really sort of toward the end of the 1890s that you can begin to say that Thanksgiving is something that all regions of the country embrace. Like so many things, traditions that we believe are sort of inscribed in the distant past are are newer than we realize. But it has been a holiday for the most part that is less commercial, that is less politicized, is more unifying. And in all those ways, I think we would say it's been positive on the whole in its role. As a historian, I was intrigued. You say at one point, quote, at its best, the study of history always involves a simultaneous encounter with both the familiar and the strange. I think it's a great phrase. Can you explain what you mean by it? Yeah, absolutely. I love to talk about that with my students. It basically is suggesting that, you know, anytime we encounter individuals from another time or place, we're going to encounter beings that share certain ways of thinking and looking at the world with us and almost always have ways of thinking and looking at the world that are different from those that we would hold. And the danger that we have is to gravitate toward one extreme or the other. So we might look at individuals in the past and we would say they are so bizarre, they are so strange or foreign to us that there's nothing that we can learn from them. There's no way that we can relate to them. Or on the other hand, we might say they're just like our neighbors in funny clothes. We see things exactly the same way. And the irony is that both of those extremes ensure that we don't learn anything. We don't learn anything that would actually enrich our lives or perhaps challenge us to think more deeply about what we believe. I think we always sort of go to the past with the idea that there are both of these elements at play. And what we want to make sure, I would suggest, is that we at least take seriously those things that are different, because it's the ways that individuals from the past are different from us that we actually encounter the opportunity to learn from them. I firmly believe that, you know, the pilgrims believed in things that at the very least would be good for us to hear and to wrestle with and to think about deeply before we dismiss them. That's the idea. I'm such an evangelist for history. I actually believe there's so much that we can learn from the past, but we have to be careful about these habits that we have of either making the past totally exotic or making it just like the present. You have a very interesting distinction, which I found very helpful when you reminded us that we need heroes in history, but not idols. I think that's really a wonderful formula. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by the the notion that we do need heroes, but even our heroes can't become idols? That's right. When I think of an idol, I think of someone that we believe 
We have to follow that person's example or that group's example. We have to submit to their convictions because they have some sort of absolute authority over our lives. And I don't think that that is ever healthy. And from a Christian perspective, that's actually wrong. It's not appropriate to treat anyone but God alone in that way. But on the other hand, we don't want to dismiss individuals who have something to teach us and disregard them either simply because they're old or outdated or they're dead white males or whatever dismissive language we might want to use. So when I say we need to search for heroes, I mean, we absolutely should be searching for role models. We should be searching for individuals that embodied values or characteristics that we want to affirm, that we want to hold up as sort of ideals to pursue. But that does not free us from applying discernment, from thinking carefully and critically about them, because, again, to use a Christian perspective, everyone but God alone is fallen, so we all fall short in some ways. And so sort of making absolute the model of any human being is inappropriate. But being able with discernment to identify values that we admire and want to replicate and finding individuals who modeled them, I think is something we ought to be about regularly. Well, in that tradition, what do you think Americans can learn from the pilgrims? I actually think there's a long list of things. I think we start with the kind of courage and determination that they showed simply in their undertaking of coming to New England. The logistical obstacles, if we think back to that 17th century context, the logistical obstacles of trying to relocate even a group of only 100 individuals across an ocean to a distant continent. It was a little like trying to colonize Mars, I think, to us today. So they showed enormous determination in that regard, enormous perseverance when sort of their worst nightmares were realized in that first winter. Of course, both of those things are admirable. I think the pilgrims would challenge us in a variety of ways. I mean, one of the things that they absolutely raised to the highest ideal was a commitment to the general welfare. They were not actually nearly so individualistic as Americans, I think, are mostly today. And so there's a kind of self-sacrifice, a self-denial for the common good that they're constantly promoting. They fall short of it sometimes, but it's an ideal that they absolutely take seriously. I admire that. I think even the language that they used occasionally to describe themselves as important, they didn't regularly refer to one another as pilgrims. William Bradford did use that terminology. One of their deacons, Robert Cushman, did. And when they used that terminology, they were reflecting a real mindset, the idea that they were passing through this world, that their ultimate hope was not in temporal things, was, I think, absolutely sort of woven into the warp and woof of their society and of their worldview. And of course, I admire that greatly. When you think about Thanksgiving this year, what are the kind of lessons from the first Thanksgiving that you think we should all pay attention to? Oh, uh, probably a variety of things would come to mind, but one of the most obvious is simply that they modeled a kind of mindset which said that everything good in their lives was a mercy, an expression or extension of God's grace, and they believed that there were always reasons to be thankful. 
again, I go back to that context for that first 1621 celebration when there are 18 married couples that have been separated by death. There are 26 families, all but four of them have lost at least one member. And they are able to proclaim God's goodness, find joy, find reasons for gratitude and for hope. In particular, just that mindset of hope just strikes me and it humbles me when I think about it. So that's where I think we start in learning from them. Listen, I really appreciate your sharing with us and we're going to have your book listed on our show page. And I think it's a great read for this time of year. And I appreciate you taking the time and showing the leadership to delve into this and to make it so clear. And I really appreciate you doing this for folks who want to learn more about Thanksgiving at this appropriate time. Well, I appreciate that. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And I just wish you and all of your audience a wonderful Thanksgiving. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. 
I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. It was really great to have a historian like Dr. Tracy McKenzie carry us through that first Thanksgiving from a historic perspective. And I have to say, it's a little different than my perspective. I remember when I was young, we always went up to Lewistown, Pennsylvania, to my Aunt Toots and Uncle Red's, and the whole family would gather, and we'd get a giant turkey. Of course, I was like six or seven, so giant was a relative word. But one of my great goals was always to get the turkey leg, which I guess was a little bit selfish, but I confess, I really like turkey legs. I also really like cranberries. So I always thought we had a great Thanksgiving. And people would watch football in the afternoon. Red, who worked really, really hard, would almost always take about a 40-minute nap laying on the couch in the middle of the living room. And people would sit around and gossip and would fill up with smells of pumpkin pie and apple pie and turkey dressing and everything else. So I actually had sort of a culinary Thanksgiving at the heart of my experience. And then as a really little kid, I did all the things that Dr. McKenzie was describing. We looked at the modernized version of pilgrims, the black hats and the outfits, the Native Americans coming to lunch. And it was all kind of fascinating and obviously very different from the actual Thanksgiving and very different from Thanksgiving as it's evolved since then. Plus, I've been very fortunate in having been able to go for a number of years to the North American College in Rome, which is the seminary, the Pope's seminary for American priests to come to. And they always have a terrific Thanksgiving dinner, and they always organize all of their seminarians by state. So we get to go to the Pennsylvania, the Georgia, the Wisconsin, and see people. It's a wonderful time of fellowship and of giving thanks. I really wrote feeling that the year has been amazing, and it's always been amazing. This year is different than most because this year includes the whole pandemic crisis, which in Italy is once again closing things down. But I think even in the middle of a pandemic, most of us have so much to be thankful for, starting with life itself, with relatives, with friends, with the ability to dream and to recognize that at some point the pandemic will disappear, just as it did back in the 1918-1919 Spanish flu cycle and that life will go on, and that we will have a chance to continue to develop. I also think that there's really something to the tradition which Washington briefly started and then Lincoln picked up on during the Civil War, and that is the, the notion that there's much to give thanks for, and that to take a day and turn to God, give a heartfelt prayer for your friends, for yourself. We have several friends who have significant health challenges, and this is a great Thanksgiving to ask God's blessing on them. The power of prayer, I think, is real. And I know of cases where it's had a huge impact. This is a wonderful time of year, even with all the problems we currently have, even with all the challenges we currently have. And I hope that each of you will have a wonderful Thanksgiving, whether with your family or if separated by getting with them by phone call or by Zoom or by some device. FaceTime, you name it. We have many more ways of sharing together than we used to, even when we're geographically separate. 
And I know I'm looking forward to calling both my daughters and their husbands and tracking down my grandchildren. And Clist and I will spend a fair amount of Thanksgiving talking to friends all over the world and sharing thanks to God for all the different blessings we've had over the last year. And frankly, asking God's blessing on the coming year and helping all of us everywhere on the planet overcome this epidemic and move on into a healthier and better future. So I'm delighted to be able to share Happy Thanksgiving with everyone who listens to the podcast. And I hope you will pass that on to your friends. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Tracy McKenzie. You can get a link to order his book, The First Thanksgiving, what the real story tells us about loving God and learning from history on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, Listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fairs. Discover more at Viking.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.